those of us here at Nil Desperandum, and on behalf of the entire Bear Crawling Nation, dedicate this episode to the memory of Jim Boyle. Jim is the beloved husband of Lorna Boyle, many-time contributor and long-time supporter of Nil Desperandum, as well as many other fine podcasts. Our hearts go out to you, Lorna, and we wish you all the best, now and always. This issue of Nil Desperandum is rated R for violence. Nil Desperandum 32 Bold Choices by Ryan Priest Hello everyone, welcome back once again. Thank you all for listening. We appreciate you being here. Main fiction today is Bold Choices by Ryan Priest. We also have not one, but two servings of Adam Gauntlet's bookshelf. But first, we have a flash fiction piece for you. Hand That Feeds by David Tallerman. David Tallerman's horror, fantasy, and science fiction short stories have appeared in over 30 markets, including Lightspeed, Bull Spec, Flash Fiction Online, and John Joseph Adams' zombie best-of anthology, The Living Dead. David has also published poetry, various film reviews and articles, and comic scripts through the award-winning British Future Quake Press. David's first novel, a comic fantasy adventure called Giant Thief, will be published this year by Angry Robot. And he says it's to be closely followed by two sequels. He can be found online at davidtollerman.net and davidtollerman.blogspot.com. Both of those you'll find linked in the show notes. Our narrator is Scott Danielson. Scott is the co-host of A Good Story is Hard to Find, which I strongly recommend you should be listening to. And you can find that link in the show notes as well. Hand That Feeds by David Tallerman Legree, having held the moment of silence for as long as he reasonably could, wrapped his fingers on the dark wood of his desktop and said, Of course, there are questions I'm obliged to ask before a decision can be reached. Dussard gave an awkward nod and echoed, Of course. You graduated with an impressive grade from the academy. However, on occasions your tutors registered certain, shall we say, differences of opinion. The artist's pale cheeks reddened a fraction. Tugging distractedly at his tuft of beard, he said, I didn't automatically agree with everything they said, so they questioned my loyalty. Is that what you mean? Legree raised a hand. I'm simply relating the observations of others. Because I'm loyal, of course I am. Is that the reason for your proposal, to express your loyalty? I'm an artist. My function is to make art. Do the wheels express loyalty when they turn under the premier's car? If they turn consistently and don't break, then perhaps one could say they do. Legree stood abruptly and walked to the window, which looked out over the municipal parks. It was lunchtime, and the office workers were arriving in a steady flow to mill about the riverbanks. Were the windows open, he would have heard the rattle of their conversation, laughter, the routine flirtations of the men and women who worked together in the administrative centers. With the windows closed, there was only a dull murmur. Legree looked further, past the river, past the Capitol building, 
to where the gray oblong of the tire factory squatted in the watery midday sun. Without turning back, he asked, Why that particular building? It's monstrous. There's no other word. I'd walk past on my way to college, and the smell made me ill. The air is black in that quarter for a mile around. The dirt attaches to everything, to your clothes, to the houses, to the people who live there. But the factory is necessary. Therefore, the dirt is necessary. We do what we can. And if it isn't aesthetic, at least the design is practical. Can't art be practical, too, if it's in the service of the state? Perhaps it can. Legree turned from the window, walked back to his bureau, sat down again. Making no effort to conceal the change in subject, he asked, Have you prepared the drafts? In answer, Dussard took a roll of papers from his document case and unfurled them over the desk. There were perhaps a dozen sheets, one large design and other small details, annotated in an elaborate scrawl. Legree took up the largest sheet and inspected at it. The hand is the state, of course. The figure is you. It's the artist, any artist. It will cover the entire east wall. Have you worked to such a scale before? No, but I'm confident I can enlarge the design. I've studied the proportions carefully. Legree nodded, re-rolled the papers, and handed them back. Finally, he offered his hand to Dussard. Congratulations, then. I find your plans acceptable. On behalf of this department, I offer you our full support. A month later, Legree went to survey the project's progress in person. The factory compound was too busy to drive into, so he left his car near the great wrought iron gates and continued on foot. Turning a corner, he saw that a substantial area around the east wall had been cordoned, and that a vast structure of scaffolding had been erected within. Above, tarpaulins were rolled and tied, presumably to be lowered in case of bad weather. Today, however, was warm and cloudless, with only a slight chill in the air to suggest the approach of autumn. The mural, to Legree's untrained eye, seemed almost complete. He was impressed, despite himself. The musculature of the hand was firm and strong, angular patches of deep color suggesting austerity. Yet the sweep of the outstretched fingers was gentle, the manner in which they cradled the figure almost maternal. Somehow, these qualities didn't contradict each other. In fact, the power and protectiveness coexisted so harmoniously that any contradiction became hard to imagine. As for the figure itself, it was nearly finished, with only the face incomplete. The likeness was obvious. Dussard had painted himself in the plain blue coveralls of an art student, his arms at his side, his head downcast. It was undeniably him, yet it could have been almost anyone. And although the pose was subservient, it wasn't without nobility. The figure, rather than being intimidated by the great hand resting about it, stood quietly meditative within its grasp. Legree stopped at the base of the scaffolding and shouted up, Dussard! Are you there? The artist's head protruded from high above. Uh, just a minute. Moments later, Dussard descended on the near side of the scaffold. Reaching the ground, he bowed stiffly and said with an awkward formality, It's an honor to have you visit us. I'm merely checking on your progress. It's certainly impressive. Thank you. It's nearly complete. Two days, perhaps. Legree nodded approvingly. The artist had worked rapidly and therefore economically. Drawing Dussard aside, out of earshot of the assistant still laboring above, he asked, And the new apartment, that's to your liking? Dussard became immediately uncomfortable. 
so much space. I, I don't know what to do with it. Legree, who knew that by his own standards it was very small and shabby, smiled, and with a nod towards the mural said, You deserve it. You'll soon grow used to it. Perhaps. Patting the artist on the shoulder, Legree went on, Don't be too rigorous in your beliefs. Serve the state and let it reward you when you're worthy. There's nothing extravagant in that. Then, almost as an afterthought, he finished, Your work. I look forward to seeing it finished. Two days, we hope. Yes. Goodbye, then. Legree dug his hands deep into the pockets of his coat and set off back towards the gates. A call came through to Legree's apartment the next morning, just before dawn. He answered at the fifth ring. Uncle? He recognized the voice of Conrad, his sister's son. The boy had started at the academy this year, and Legree had arranged for him to be apprenticed to Dussard while the mural was being painted on condition that he report back any indiscretions or suspicious behavior on the part of the young artist. Do you know what time it is? I trust this is important. Uncle, there was panic in the boy's voice. Something terrible's happened. Will you come? Where? Is it your mother? The factory. Something terrible, Uncle. All right. Wait for me outside. I'll be there presently. Legree replaced the receiver without waiting for an answer. He dressed hurriedly, left without shaving, and drove to the factory through the deserted streets. The sun was barely up, a glimmer low on the horizon. The working day wouldn't begin for an hour or so, and he found the wrought iron gates still locked. But there was another, smaller entrance open to his right, and there he saw his nephew waiting, huddled in the folds of a greatcoat. Legree got out of the car and yelled, Where's Dussard? Drawing nearer, he could see that Conrad was already halfway to being hysterical. His attempt to reply came out as incoherent stammer. The boy was his mother's son, Legree thought. He wouldn't waste any more opportunities on the child. Calm down, he said, as reassuringly as he could manage. Tell me slowly, where's Dussard? We, we don't know, but the mural... The boy broke off again with a whimper. Legree sighed. All right, show me what's happened to the mural. As they turned the corner, however, he saw without any assistance what was wrong. He stood there for a minute, trying to think it through, and to control the fury welling inside him. When he was calm enough that he no longer felt he'd wring the boy's neck, he turned on Conrad and shouted, Was it Dussard? Yes, uncle. How did it happen? And when? As Conrad looked from his uncle to the mural and back, tears glistened in his eyes. He, he sent us away at four as, as usual. He said he wanted to finish it. He said it was his, and he wanted to finish it alone. Damn you, replied Legree, his tone now flat and conversational. My one instruction was not to let him out of your sight. He turned his back on the boy, resolutely ignoring his broken sobs, and gazed up at the immense painting. He felt furious and dismayed. In fact, the piece hadn't changed so much since he'd last seen it. Dussard must be some kind of genius, Legree thought absently, to have altered the tone, the very heart of it, in so short a time. But this observation was quickly replaced by a resurgence of anger at his nephew, at the young artist, most of all at himself for having underestimated Dussard so catastrophically. In the painting, the hand was no longer resting protectively about the figure. Now it clutched like a predator about to dismember its prey. The fingers, which before had been full of casual strength, now seemed to have relaxed only as a last cruelty before they crushed the artist from existence.
As for Dussard himself, his head was still bowed, still submissive. But the face, which had been blank the day before, was now a mask for the most exquisite pain. The eyes bulged, the tongue lolled grotesquely from between bloated lips. Worse even than that, though, was the impression of utter despair, as if even death could provide no hope of relief. Finally, Legree had to look away. He felt nauseous. When he'd begun to recover himself, he turned on the boy again. "'Restore it, Conrad,' he said. "'You and the other assistants. Return it to the original design by nightfall. Ensure no one sees it but yourselves, or so help me. You and my sister and your whole damned family will be rotting in poverty by the end of the week.' Four hours later, Legree was waiting impatiently in an interview room beneath the security center. They had found Dussard in his apartment, sitting on a camp bed in the one room he'd made any attempt to furnish. His wages for the last month's work were beside him, largely untouched, upon the nightstand. Apparently, he'd made no effort to flee or resist his inevitable arrest. Nevertheless, when the guard finally brought him in, his nose was crusted with drying blood, and one side of his face was glowingly purple. Legree glared up at the guard, but the guard didn't appear to notice. He forced Dussard into a chair opposite Legree and retreated to the door, where he stood staring resolutely at the ceiling. Dussard seemed unaware of his surroundings. Sitting with his mangled, downcast face, he resembled nothing more than his own representation of himself. Yet another small victory we've allowed him, thought Legree. I asked to be the one to interview you. You've humiliated me and embarrassed the Department of Culture, and I'd like to know why. Dussard didn't respond. His nose had begun to bleed again, and his upper lip was smeared with crimson. You egotist! Explain what the point of this petty little rebellion was. Explain how you've done anything other than make an irritation of yourself. It won't make an ounce of difference to anything, but please, to satisfy my curiosity, at least try to justify yourself. Dussard made no reply, gave no hint of recognition. Legree was beginning to wonder if the artist was listening at all. Still, he had no choice now but to continue. So that you understand, you'll be handed over to the security services and taken north, to the dissident camps. I've heard the conditions aren't so bad these days. There may even be some place for your art, and perhaps there will come a time when you can return to us. Perhaps you'll find eventually that that is what you want. Dussard continued to gaze at a point on the concrete floor and said nothing. In the meantime, I assure you, you won't be remembered. No one will mourn your loss. We won't allow it. So I ask you again, Dussard, do you really think it was worth it, your little statement? Was it such a trial to work with the protection, the patronage of the state? Legree cleared his throat, almost in desperation. Nobody saw it, you know. Your mural's been covered over while your assistants return it to the original designs. It won't be so impressive, of course, but then who will ever know? The message will survive any artistic imperfections. Legree's rage was beginning to burn itself out against the resolute indifference of that battered face. His voice a fraction gentler, he began again. None of us have any illusions that the state is perfect, but we try to make it better. We are not without our flaws, but nor are we tyrants or sadists. All we ask is that you cooperate, that you conform to a larger plan. It isn't so much to ask. Still, no hint of a reaction. 
Legree found a note of pleading entering his voice as he said, Won't you tell me at least why you did it? Dussard looked up and then stared directly into his eyes. His expression was unreadable beneath the stains of violet and red. It might have been anger or as easily pity. You saw the painting, didn't you? Yes, I saw your painting. And you didn't understand? No, I don't understand you at all. Then, a little disgusted by his own lie, Legree got to his feet. He walked to a corner of the room, where he glared intently at the rough brickwork. He stood like that for a minute or so, not feeling able to look at the young man behind him or at the guard waiting by the door. Eventually, he gave another short cough, turned around and said, Damn you! Why didn't you leave? No one forced you to stay. You tell me. Is there a place for me anywhere, do you think? Legree considered. Then he called the guard over with a wave of his hand. Yes, he said. I think there is. And you'll be there by tomorrow morning. Next, Adam Gauntlet returns with another selection. This time he pulls down from his bookshelf, Mouse, by Art Spiegelman. Hello, and welcome to the bookshelf. Uh, this time I want to talk about graphic novels, and the book that first convinced me that graphic novels could be intensely moving artwork, Spiegelman's Mouse. Many years ago, I lived in New York City for a summer, doing research on a paper I was about to write. I became very fond of the Village Voice, the weekly free paper, but there was one thing about it I found laughable, and not in a good way, uh, the comics. I began to think of them as New York art, by which I meant art that only New Yorkers could love, or would pretend to understand. No doubt I'm being unfair to them, but at that time I could only think that Printing those things was the voice's form of charity, keeping a few pennies in the pockets of people who might otherwise have starved for lack of talent. I mention this because it was very soon after that summer that I encountered Mouse, and began to think that perhaps some of those New Yorkers had a point. Spiegelman is a veteran New Yorker. Though born in Sweden, his parents, Vladek and Anya, moved to America soon afterwards, and Spiegelman grew up in Queens. He became a major figure in the underground comics movement of the 1960s and 70s and was co-founder with Bill Griffith of Arcade. Though the comics Spiegelman worked on are now considered influential, at that time they made little or no money. It was only after he married Francois Mouly and they settled in Soho that he began working on the series that eventually earned him acclaim, Mouse, a survivor's tale, based on the early life of his father Vladek in Poland before the war. This began as a series published episodically in Raw, and later was collected in graphic novel form in 1986. In 1992, he published the second part of that story about his time in the concentration camps, and here my troubles began. These won him critical acclaim, and in 1992 he started working for the New Yorker magazine. The cover of 24 September 2001 is his, and is thought to be one of the best ten covers of the last 40 years. Though it appears completely black at first glance, closer examination shows the ghostly outline of the towers. He left the New Yorker soon after the Trade Center attacks, claiming that American media, the New Yorker included, had become too differential to power, particularly towards the Bush administration. 
He is an Eisner Award winner, among many other awards, and has achieved the pinnacle of American media success. He has appeared as himself on an episode of The Simpsons. Mouse is a very difficult book to read. Not that it's unclear or badly written. The writing is graceful and measured, and the artwork is stunning. No, it is difficult because of its subject, Vladek, whose uncompromising attitude and at times selfish behaviour is set against a nightmare that was pulled into the 1930s, a vivid and terrifying dream that only becomes more intense in the second book when Vladek is sent to Auschwitz. Vladek is not a natural hero, but he is a survivor, and it is his adaptability and instinct for living in adversity that sees him through, when so many others, including most of his own family and his young son, Rishiu, do not survive. Spiegelman's conceit is to draw his characters as though they were animals, hence the title Mouse, as his Jewish characters are all mice hounded by the German cats. Oddly, that touch does not soften the book. If anything, it makes it more terrifying, particularly if you ever happen to have seen a cat toy with and eventually disembowel a real mouse. Spiegelman's relationship with his father is complicated at best. Neither man understands the other, and Spiegelman is half convinced that he was only a compensation prize for his parents, a not-quite-satisfactory replacement for his dead brother, whom he never met. This is a refrain that haunts the story, even to its final page, but Spiegelman's own guilt is the engine that drives the plot. My favourite sequence occurs in And Here My Troubles Began. Spiegelman, under intense pressure as a result of the success of his first book, begins to cave in under the strain, and in the book this is represented by him reverting to childish stature. He retreats to the safety of his psychiatrist's office, and personally I've often wondered whether New Yorkers feel the same way about their shrinks as the English do about their pubs, where he spills his guts, and in the process begins to regain some of his adult form. Then he leaves his shrink, goes back to his office, turns on the tape recording of one of his interviews with his father, and of an instant is consumed with guilt again. The adult becomes the child once more, trapped in a world that is too big for him to cope with. I cannot give you an idea of the art, but consider this sequence. It went with him Wolf, Tasha and Bibi, Lolik's little sister Lonia, and our boy Rishiu. We waited until they disappeared from our eyes. It was the last time we ever saw them, but that we couldn't know. When things came worse in our ghetto, we said always, Thank God the kids are with Persis safe. That spring, on one day, the Germans took from Schrodler to Auschwitz over 1,000 people. Most they took were kids, some only two or three years. Some kids were screaming and screaming. They couldn't stop. So the Germans swinged them by the legs against a wall. And I never any more screamed. Now, pros and cons. Uh, pro 1. Anyone with an interest in history or personal stories of the war ought to read Mouse. It is very much a survivor's tale, and rings true in, at least in part because Spiegelman does not sentimentalise his father's story, which is a temptation he must have found difficult to resist. Pro 2. The writing is superb. The characters are drawn from life and are believable, but what makes the story flow is Spiegelman's decision to let Vladek tell the story in his own words, his own syntax, as with the sequence quoted above. It would have been easy to clean up the dialogue, but it would not have been true. Pro 3. Particularly in horror, it is often tempting to draw in technicolor, making a hammer horror piece out of a story. Spiegelman's art reminds us that horror is in the little details, that you do not need gore and groove to be memorable. 
a con one. If you do not enjoy war stories or tales of the ghetto, then this is emphatically not for you. Moreover, even if you do enjoy them, this is a very downbeat tale. There are no moments of storing heroism. There is only the ongoing struggle to survive. Con 2. You may not like Vladek. I am not entirely convinced Spiegelman ever did. But Vladek was his father, and it becomes clear that in spite of it all, Spiegelman did love him. The story could not hurt so much if he had not. That's it from me. Goodbye. And it's time for our main fiction. Bold Choices by Ryan Priest Ryan is a screenwriter and novelist living in Los Angeles. His debut novella, The Way of Open Hands, is currently available from Wild Child Publishing, and his first feature film, The Scam, will be released to theaters this year. Find him online at www.ryanpriest.net. Our narrator will probably be somewhat familiar to those of you listening on the No Agenda stream. This, of course, is Rhino the Bearded. Bold Choices by Ryan Priest Thin strips of rain began dropping from the purple and gray sky overhead. Ted didn't want to join the three men already crowding under the only eve. It was warm rain on a humid night, the type that seems to steam when it hits the ground. Come on, said a stranger, taking out an umbrella for Ted to share. It seemed like such a practical thing. An umbrella. He couldn't believe that he hadn't thought to pack one. There were so many other items left behind that hindsight was now screaming for. If he'd only packed weeks before, rather than at the last minute in a frenzied rush, then none of this would be a problem. Thanks. Ted huddled next to the man. He was tall, maybe six two. And pretty big, not muscled or obese, just big the way some guys are framed. Ted felt a little more at ease to scope out the others now that a sparkling screen of falling water was hiding the details of his roving eyes. The three guys under the eave were the only ones talking. They were all black, but he had no way of knowing if they were all friends or just talking to shoot the breeze. Aside from the big guy and the blacks, there were only two others waiting in the muddy gravel behind the run-down gas station. One was an old guy covering his head with a newspaper. The other was a piggish white guy wearing a business suit. He must have come directly from the office. Ted had watched him drive up in a Ferrari earlier. His yellow shirt had been entirely drenched with sweat as he stumbled away from the car, leaving the keys behind to join the rest of the men who had already been waiting. Look, said the big guy holding up his phone. I get local channels, AM, FM, and it even has satellite cable too, but that was going to cost extra. The man, obviously proud of his phone, pressed a button and the small screen expanded to cover the entire keypad. 
Ted didn't want to seem rude, but the phone was tuned to the news, and they were only discussing the suicides. Mitch Paulson, CEO of Microtech, was found hanging in his office earlier, bringing the total of Fortune 500 executive suicides to seven for today easily the most since the bold choice law was first brought before Congress two months ago. The doe-eyed, middle-aged anchorwoman said into the camera. Also hit hard today was the world of religion, where five more Christian ministers and one more rabbi have been reported dead by their own hand. Those numbers are only expected to grow. Ted couldn't watch. He looked to the old man at his right, who had a front-page story about the mass of disappearances sticking to his bald spot like paper mache It was all around. The bold choice law had ruined everything. He had never felt so alone. He wished he could see his wife one last time, but if he had the courage to face her, then he wouldn't be here in the first place, with a bunch of strangers each running from God knew what. Ted knew... At least deep down he knew why he hadn't packed. He didn't want the bold choice to pass, and somewhere he held on to the unexamined hope that if he didn't pack or make any other preparations, then it wouldn't. Besides, if someone had seen him packing then, it would be all over anyway. At least he had presence of mind during one notable pessimistic day to order the seat on the bus. That much might just be enough to save his life. Around 11.30, the bus pulled in from out of the black rain, big and heartless, made of steel. The three black guys pushed past to get on first. No one said anything. No one wanted any trouble. Ted could see from the outside that the bus was nearly at its capacity. It had been driving all night stopping in a preordained areas to pick up various passengers, walking out of the shadows. As the big man crossed the threshold, stepping onto the bus, an alarm and a red light went off as a man with a shotgun immediately emerged from over the bus driver's shoulder, ready to blow a hole through not only the big guy, but Ted, who was next in line. The driver began to wand up and down his body with a handheld metal detector, while his friend with the shotgun kept his sights steady. The phone. No phones. Every phone's got a chip they can track. Leave it. The driver said, retaking his seat. The phone's not in my name, he pleaded. But his only response was a subtle inching closer of the shotgun barrel. The man looked from the barrel to the cell phone and back again. The phone hit the mud under Ted's foot as he stepped onto the bus. Number? The driver asked. 07781. Ted said as the driver checked it off and let him pass. Only numbers. No names. No way for someone to be identified. No names. No phones. Only what you could carry and stow in your own seat. This was a one-way trip to a new world. There were only a few seats left amongst a wide array of personalities. These men would never have been on the same bus otherwise. All from different income brackets, races, walks of life, there were tattooed, dead-eyed ex-con types you'd expect, but also yuppies like the guy in his suit. There was a skinny Asian kid with glasses 
who looked like he would be a computer programmer. He was probably a murderer, too. Ted found himself seated next to a Latino man. There was no need to wonder if he was an illegal alien or not. Only full citizens had anything to fear from bold choice. There was some more trouble at the front of the bus. The piggish suit didn't have a number. The driver was telling him to get off the bus, but he was waving handfuls of money, begging. All the seats were now taken, but the driver took his money and told him he could sit on the floor. Ted wondered how much the suit was worth as its owner plopped down on the dirty, wet, rubber floor of the bus. Normally, this wouldn't be allowed. It'd be a fire hazard, but if any authority pulled this bus over, there'd be bigger trouble than that. One more stop, the driver said, closing the door as he prepared to re-enter the highway. We're full. No more stops, the man with the shotgun said. But those people paid too. Too bad. They stay. Ted exhaled and closed his eyes, able to rest for the first time since the news broke. It had hit around 10 a.m. He'd been at the office pretending to work, but really he was waiting to see if the bill passed. When the news reached him, it was like a sock to the gut. He should have known they were going to pass it. Too much money was there to be made. There was no way to ever get the genie back in the bottle. He'd driven straight home, packed a quick bag of what at the time seemed his essentials, and he was gone without leaving so much as a note for his wife. When she found out he was gone, she'd no doubt piece it together. Most Americans didn't know there was no law against collecting your DNA without your knowledge. It was illegal to use against you in court, but nonetheless, it was perfectly legal if someone, for whatever reason, wanted to take a catalog of everyone's DNA. So for years, under the radar, doctors' offices around the country were receiving kickbacks for blood samples. Salons and celebrity makeup artists sold hair. Police, schools, everyone got in on the action. Where was the harm? If someone was paying for it, then why not make a buck? Bold Choice, a conglomerate made up of a spiderweb series of smaller companies and holdings, was the leader in all manner of records. After even more kickbacks and aggressively marketed PR campaign, former Bold Choice CEO and current Congressman Ron Schmidt had proposed the Bold Choice Law. Of course, he said it was to protect children and had nothing to do with the fact that Bold Choice paid the congressman a $200 million pension. The bill, for better or worse, gave law enforcement the ability to plug a DNA sample into the computer and get back in real time a name, address, and phone number. No longer would crimes go unsolved. Cases that had been cold 20 years could now be solved with the press of a button. The beauty of it, as they sold it, was that no one had to register. Bold Choice assured that they already had the information. All of those kickbacks had paid off. They were sitting on a database which matched every American's DNA to a Social Security number. Who can speak against a bill like that? Sure, you have all the normal privacy people, but their few voices were drowned out by the mob. Bloodthirsty for all the revenge. It's not like someone could speak out publicly against the bill without bringing questions about 
what he was afraid of. People expected there'd be a few suicides and maybe even a few disappearances. But no one could have foreseen the chaos the passing of the law would cause. Ted wondered if the man next to him was a murderer or a rapist. That's who ran. With the prison population exploding, a murder conviction was almost assuredly a death sentence. Rapists were looking at three to five years, but with the added sentence of chemical castration upon their parole. For most men, a life without the ability to have an erection was worse than no life at all. It was purely vengeful, too. For the few years since the implementation of mandatory chemicast, the numbers of parolee recidivism hadn't changed. They were simply using brooms or assaulting their victims in other creative ways. Murder, the man said, reading Ted's mind. I didn't mean it. It was 15 years ago. This guy come at me in a parking lot with a knife. I got him first. I knew if I stuck around, I'd had maybe a 50-50 chance of beating the rap. I should have tried. Now, if they catch me, they'll never believe it was self-defense. I'm Jake. What about you? What'd you do? Murderer, Ted said, realizing it was the first time in his life he'd ever spoken that word in reference to himself. You got any people waiting for you in Venezuela? Jake asked. No, Ted said shortly, hoping he wouldn't get roped into conversation. He wasn't in the mood to answer inane questions. Of course, he didn't know anyone in Venezuela. It just happened to be the only country offering amnesty to Americans fleeing the bold choice. It wasn't such a stupid move either. Those who were running had been living normal, productive lives. They weren't the criminal types, and Lord knows they weren't stupid enough to risk committing another crime. As the first light from the morning broke along the horizon, Ted realized he'd fallen asleep. He could see that two other buses had joined their trek, and they were now driving through the desert, somewhere on a two-lane interstate. The plan was to sneak across the Mexican border as quickly as possible, and then continue on through until Venezuela. There, it was every man for himself. Ted wondered if Sherry would hate him more for leaving her or for what he had done. She had to have suspected something after all these years, but it was just one of those things neither of them had ever mentioned. He was only a kid back then, anyway. He was 21, and she was 18. They'd been dating for nearly seven months when she called him. Ted, I'm sorry. There's someone else. His name is Tom. The broken heart hadn't been the worst of it. Had it only been a broken heart, then Ted could have just licked his wounds and been done with it. It was something deeper. He didn't just love Sherry, but he also wanted to spend the rest of his life with her. He'd left college two years early so that he could get a job and move her in. Now, some guy, Tom, was just going to crash his plans and ruin his life, and for what? He hadn't gone there to kill him. He had only wanted to see the guy who was worth the destruction of his life in Sherry's opinion. He hadn't gone with the express intent to do anything, but the second he saw the guy, that all changed. He'd parked across the street from Tom's building, waiting to get a look at him. 
What he saw made him sick. Tom had long, curly, blonde hair, a dark tan, and a chiseled physique. He was a male bimbo. Sherry didn't love this guy. He was just pretty. Pretty wouldn't be there in five years. Pretty wasn't going in for sickness and health. He didn't blame Sherry. He was no looker himself, and she was young. He told himself he was doing it as much for her as for him. Wasn't it better that Tom went away before he could do something unforgivable, like knock her up or propose? He wasn't even sure he'd left any evidence. He couldn't even be sure the body had been identified, but there was no way he could take the risk. One day, a month or two in the future, he'd be sitting at home watching television with Sherry, and there'd be a knock. There'd be cops in handcuffs, and they'd tell him he was under the arrest for the murder of Tom Carson right in front of her. He couldn't stand the thought of her looking right at him as she learned the truth. No, Tom didn't run off with another girl and skip town. He had his head bashed in with a tire and iron, and had his body with its mashed head and destroyed face left unceremoniously in a patch of woods thirty minutes outside of town. The mental vision of Sherry's face looking at him as he was a monster made his body quiver like a dog trying to shake off a bad smell. He preferred to have his last sight of his wife be that of her telling him that she loved him and to have a good day at work. Hey, where the hell are you going? Ted looked up and saw one of the men yelling something at the driver. Sit back. The man with the shotgun turned it on the passengers. There were other buses now pulling up from all different directions. They all seemed to be heading towards a big empty warehouse planted right down in the middle of nowhere. What's going on? Jake turned to Ted, but he had no answers for him. One by one, the buses all pulled up to the warehouse side by side. The men all looked uneasy in their seats. Through the windows, they could see the passengers on the other buses seemed surprised too. The warehouse's big garage door began to open, slowly. To everyone's horror, waiting inside were 30 or 40 police cars and twice as many cops. It had all been a setup. They were never going to Venezuela. Whoever had set up the bus trips had figured it'd be easier to take everyone's money and just turn them over to the cops rather than waste the gas going to South America. There were probably more kickbacks in there somewhere. The cops began converging on the buses as yelling erupted on all sides. The man with the gun told everyone to stay back as he waited for the cops to board. Then shots began to ring out from the other buses. The men were all rushing to escape. The next thing Ted knew, the first three rows' heads exploded as a group of men from his own bus converged on the shotgun. Police were tackling most of the guys to flee the buses, but they couldn't get them all. Ted found himself swept into the big cluster of men all clamoring to get out of the trap. Outside, the cops were everywhere. The first instinct was just to stop, but he reminded himself that if the cops got him, he was going to die. His only hope was to be one of the few lucky enough to make it away in the commotion. It was hard to focus, 
but Ted thought he saw someone familiar in the crowds trampling to the police and heading for the open desert. Bullets began to drop the runners one by one, but the numbers were still good enough to get free if one was able to stay towards the front of the pack. As more men's and a few of the scarce women's bodies fell to the gunfire, Ted got a clear sight and there was no mistaking whose slender back and auburn hair was ahead. Sherry? Ted screamed. Ted! Sherry stopped and turned around. The two stood there, uh, each amazed to see the other. Sherry? Ted asked silently. Beautiful Sherry. What had she done? What secret crimes had she been hiding this entire time? Then, as if shoved by an unseen hand, Sherry's body went toppling over backwards. Ted ran to his wife. She was on her back and had blood pouring out from her somewhere. He held her to his chest, impotent to heal her. She looked up at him. When she tried to speak, only a gurgle of blood came out. A moment later, a second bullet whizzed by, this one finding its mark in Ted's neck, sending his body to the ground. Through the dust being kicked up from the herd of runners and the smoke from the gunfire, Ted could barely make out Sherry's face a few feet away. Still unable to speak, Sherry only smiled, shrugged, then her light went out, followed shortly by that of her husband and hundreds of other men and women splayed across the desert sand. Men and women from all different races, classes, backgrounds, their blood all running together under the all-seeing desert sun. And as promised, before we call it a day, Adam Gauntlet joins us once more with another selection from his bookshelf, this time The Labyrinth Makers, by Anthony Price. Hello, and welcome to the bookshelf. Uh, this time it's a spy thriller come hot foot from the Cold War, The Labyrinth Makers, by Anthony Price. My copy is an Orion Crime Masterworks edition published in 2002. This novel was first published in 1970. There is a Kindle version, and the paperback should still be in print, though the same can't be said for the rest of Price's work. This novel, The Alamut Ambush and Colonel Butler's Wolf, were compiled into a British television series, Chess Game, by Granada in the mid-1980s. That series was then compiled into movie-length segments for American audiences and can be found on Amazon under the titles Deadly Recruit and The Alamut Ambush. I'm not a huge fan of spy novels. I can read Le Carre, but he leaves me cold. I think there's a significant difference between emotional understanding and intellectual appreciation of a subject, and I find that while I can intellectually get Le Carre, I'm just not emotionally involved, which is probably the death knell for a thriller. The same could be said of Fleming. The post-war generation is a target audience for a plot that features, for example, an ex-Nazi firing what amounts to a V-2 rocket on London, Moonraker, or a master spy ring using pirate gold to finance Soviet espionage efforts in America, Live and Let Die. 
It's not that they aren't fun, but they are starting to look a little ragged around the edges. My dislike might also be traced to my 1980s childhood. There were thousands of half-baked Cold War thriller writers flooding the market with hundreds of thousands of bad novels. Ronald Reagan had famously called the Soviets the evil empire back in 83, and people took schlock like Red Dawn semi-seriously. This was meat and drink for hack writers who made a killing with testosterone-filled Soviet-bashing He-Man stories. The thing is, there's only so much of any one thing that someone can swallow, and I reached my limit on that stuff a long time ago. So, these days, for a spy novel to get my attention, it needs to have a completely different take on the genre. Price has that different take. The Labyrinth Makers starts with the discovery of a wrecked Dakota found at the bottom of an artificial lake drained by accident when the installation of a gas pipeline goes wrong. The pilot, John Steerforth, is at the centre of a mystery that dates back to September 1945, when he was flying in and out of a conquered Berlin. Steerforth is supposed to have smuggled something very valuable out of the ruined city, and everyone seems to think he knew where the loot of Troy, given to Berlin by the archaeologist Schliemann, ended up. British intelligence agent David Audley is given the task of finding out what really happened, but there's an additional complication. A top Soviet agent also wants to know Steerforth's secret. Is his interest purely archaeological? Or is there something more complex going on behind the scenes? That, in a nutshell, is Price's technique. He covers the same Cold War anti-Soviet ground as his contemporaries, but rather than go over well-trodden territory, he manages to tie his spy stories to historical events. Other Paths to Glory is as much about a missing Great War Battalion as it is Double Crosses the 1970s. Our Man in Camelot is a, an Arthurian mystery. The Old Vengeful is about a revolutionary war spiring, as well as an IRA plot. October Men features English Civil War stolen gold, in addition to its Soviet shill. Price gives the reader a solid historical mystery with each plot. I don't have to be bored with the same old Reagan-era battle cries, when there are more interesting and more complicated problems to solve. Price himself is a bit of an enigma. He's an Oxford-trained historian and journalist, born in 1928, who briefly served in the British Army just after the war. He worked for the Westminster Press and the Oxford Times up until 1988, and wrote 19 thrillers as well as a non-fiction popular history of Napoleonic-era frigate captains. Yet he more or less disappears off the literary map in the late 1980s. 1988 was the year he stopped being a journalist. 1989 is the publication date of his last thriller, The Memory Trap, at which point Price would have been in his early 60s. For all I know, he's dead now, though Google doesn't throw up an obituary for him. Retirement isn't quite what seems to have happened. Even retirees occasionally publish, and Price's only other work was his 1990 frigate history. The timing is suggestive. In 1987, Reagan called on Gorbachev to tear down the Berlin Wall, and in January 1988, Perestroika began. It's almost as if Price didn't see a future for his kind of spy in the brave new world that was coming, and soon afterwards stopped seeing a future in anything else. Consider this, told from Audley's imagined point of view. But it was not the moment of impact he saw. 
He could never even decide if it was skill or chance that slipped the plane so exactly between the random beaches and set it down so precisely. Chance more likely, for in that torrential downpour a frantic pilot could have seen little, and luck could be cruel, certainly. It was the long, slow decay afterwards which he saw, and the slow journey to nowhere. He saw Steerforth changing into a horror, and a gorgeous windfall for millions of tiny, hungry eaters. Icarus turned to Yorick, and it, in that framework generations of pond life lived and died, untroubled except for the small upheavals of bones and buckles, buttons and fastenings, each settling into their natural resting place. Now, pros and cons. Pro 1. Price has an excellent grasp of history and a keen eye for what, for the what-if that makes for a good historical thriller. He has the gift of making the implausible seem natural. Even if you don't much go for spy thrillers, subplots will carry you along. A pro, too. These aren't hyper-masculine gunfight sagas, though Price shows his 1970s roots more than a little, and at times it does start to feel like life on Mars. There's no way Stallone nor any other 80s action actor could star in a Price plot. Pro 3. The characters are broad brush, but believable. There's little things that count, like Audley's dislike of flies, which, we're later told, dates back to his war experiences when he had to deal with cleaning blood and guts from his tank. Touches like that make a character who might otherwise seem flat more memorable. Con 1. This is very talky-talky. At times the characters seem to rush from conversation to conversation. While this doesn't have to be a bad thing, you might eventually get overwhelmed by the amount of dialogue. Con 2. Not all of these books can be found easily. The novels that later became chess game are still in print, but if you decide you want to find the others, you'd best be prepared for a hunt. I found most of my collection hidden in second-hand shops scattered all over London. A Libris or similar may be your friend here. That's it from me. Goodbye. So there we have it, another episode put to bed. Thank you once again for listening, whether you're listening to the podcast download from ndstories.com or on the No Agenda stream. And a special thank you to Janet. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. To everyone else, if you have enjoyed this or any of our stories, please visit www.ndstories.com to leave a comment and a donation. We cannot continue to do this without your support. Nil Desperandum is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Editor and publisher is Jim Phillips. Find us online at ndstories.com, Nil Desperandum on Facebook or Google+, and on the No Agenda stream Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific. Until next time, take care, my friends.